Well, good morning. So good to be with you in worship this morning, or if you're joining us online, so good to be worshiping with you in, in that way this morning. Uh, we're continuing a series uh, through the Gospel of John. It's kind of a longer one. It's going to run through the beginning of, of June for us. And we're just kind of chipping away at uh, different stories throughout the Gospel of John. And the, the whole idea of this is that um, following Jesus, the Christian faith is not just based in religious claims or spiritual ideas. It, it's actually based in uh, claims that are historical in nature. In both Christmas and Easter, we have pretty profound claims upon history that both say that something actually happened in this world uh, that isn't important just for people who already uh, believe in Jesus, but really for everybody everywhere. And the Apostle John, in writing his gospel, uh, kind of fessed up to the reason he wrote. And we've been remembering this throughout every uh, message in this series. Here's what John wrote. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the Apostle John tells us, the reason I'm writing this is so that you all can believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that in so doing you might have life, new life in his name. So we're holding in mind uh, throughout this series this idea of responding to Jesus in faith, which means trust, not just believing things about him in our head, but trusting him with our lives. So if you remember, uh, chapter five opened a new section in John's gospel uh, where Jesus is beginning now to focus on the festivals of Judaism. And in in chapter five, uh, he was focused on the Sabbath And his pattern is that he's kind of picking some kind of image out of these festival celebrations and showing how he has come to fulfill uh, all that those things uh, foretold. So chapter five focused on the Sabbath. Chapter six was organized around the Passover. Today in chapter seven, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to participate in the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's listen now to the scripture. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Leah. So, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts to teach. Um, You know, we, we read just kind of a a spattering of verses from chapter 7. We know this is the Feast of Tabernacles because it says that earlier in the chapter. But when the Jewish festival of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to Jesus, 
leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Uh, But Jesus didn't go up right away because he had already confronted quite a bit of opposition. So our text says it was halfway through the festival that Jesus chose to go up to Jerusalem. Now, back in Jesus' day, every uh, Jewish male was commanded by the law to attend the three great feasts in Jerusalem every year. And that pretty much meant everybody gathered in Jerusalem three times a year. And these, these festivals were known as the three pilgrimage festivals. First, Pesah, or known as Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This celebrated uh, the exodus from Egypt and God's provision and guidance for his people. Then the Shavuot, or Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, celebrating the giving of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then the Sukkot, or the Festival of Ingathering, Festival of Booths or Tabernacles, all those referring to the same thing. Uh, Celebrating both the fall harvest and remembering uh, the the dependence of uh, the people of Israel on the will of God, that God will provide for, for his people. So that last festival, uh, the Festival of Tabernacles, is where Jesus is at. And it was the most joyous of all the festivals. In fact, it was the only one where God said, hey, I want you to rejoice before me. Look what he said. Rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And that was a direct quote regarding the Feast of Tabernacles. This thing is to be a party, God said. A joyous party for celebration. And rejoice they did. Here's, Here's a quick description. The week-long celebration began after the fall harvest. Figs, pomegranates, dates, and grapes had been gathered, and the olives hung heavy on the trees. Now was the time to be glad. Following God's command, the people built booths of olive, palm, and myrtle branches. The booths, or tabernacles, provided shade. Think tent, right? It's an outdoor dwelling. But there needed to be enough space in the branches so the people could see the sky, reminding them of their years in the wilderness. These booths, or Sukkot in Hebrew, gave the feast its name. For seven days, the people ate, lived, and slept in these booths. It was a big camping adventure, right? Since this was one of the three feasts in which everyone was commanded to come to Jerusalem, thousands of people crowded the streets of the city, and there were Sukkot everywhere. The children loved it, and so did the adults. It was a time to praise God for the past gifts of freedom, land, and bountiful harvest. So, so it was a huge party. Everybody's living in these little shacks that they've built. They're everywhere in the city. The city is completely packed. And, and everybody there also followed another command from Scripture uh, that, that uh, told the people to grab an olive branch, a myrtle branch, and a palm branch, and to tie them together to make a thing called a lulav. It's like a mix between a bouquet and a flag. Right? It was something they'd carry around with them and wave at all the big kind of corporate, corporate celebrations. So thousands of people, everybody with this little thing, like, hey, I got my party thing here. And, and the Feast of Tabernacles, in addition, took place in the fall. It's the harvest festival, so it's right at the height of the dry season. So a big part of the celebration included what was known as the water ceremony. And this, was, this happened on the last day. And it was this big to-do with the priests and processing through the city. And it was remembering this great promise, the great promises of Scripture, that God would satisfy the thirst of his people. That God would come back and fulfill his promises 
with the giving of fresh and, and living water. And the Old Testament is full of these, like literally, probably hundreds. I, I just lifted two of them. Here's one from Isaiah. See, I'm doing a new thing, says the Lord. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Or this from Zechariah. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea. Imagery being, this living water is going to flow out in all directions to the whole world. In summer and in winter, it'll never stop. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. Right, so this, this ceremony remembers these promises. Uh, and, it, and it's remembering these promises in the midst of the realities of life. You know, right at the height of the dry season, think of a fall day in Michigan where it hasn't rained for a month and you crumble the leaves and just dust is getting in your nose. When you mow, it's a mess. You're sneezing. It's hard, right? It, the, the land is just parched. And sometimes life feels like that, doesn't it? I mean, so all these promises of God providing fresh living water are overlaid uh, onto the realities of our lives, which uh, is so accurately captured in Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I mean, life can feel like that desert with no oasis in sight, right? Nothing but oppressive heat and the stark absence of the very thing you need, water. And in our hearts is this cry, God, where are you? I'm thirsty. I'm dying here. Right, so this, this water ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles paired the realities of life with the promises of scripture in a tremendous climactic celebration, right? It, it held those things in tension. It was the climax of the entire week. Here's what would happen in the water ceremony. The priests would gather at the temple and they would have a big ceremonial pitcher and they would process out of the temple down through the city to the pool of Siloam where they would fill the pitcher with living water. Remember the difference between living water and still water? Living water was moving water from a spring or a river or something like that. Still water was like the, the stuff from a cistern. It was second-rate water. Like only living water could purify. So the priests would march through the city on, on a, a, a well-known route. So think... Uh, super-packed parade feel. The thousands of people in the city came with their lulav, those three branches, together. They lined the streets of, of the parade route to the Pool of Siloam, everyone waving their branches and, and, and looking forward to what was to come. The, the priests would make it to the pool. They'd fill that pitcher with water. Then they would turn and start heading back toward the temple. And here's where the feel in the city began to change. From super-energetic parade to more like the 18th hole at the Master's. On Sunday, the top two golfers going into the final day are still neck and neck. It has all come down to the final hole. 
and everybody on the course is trying to get to the 18th green because everybody wants to see it. You can, you can think of these masses of crowds like going through. That was what it was like in Jerusalem. Everybody trying to get up to the temple to see this thing that is about to happen. Everybody wanted to witness what was arguably the most joy-filled moment in the most joy-filled day of the most joy-filled festival in Judaism. And so real, pairing the promise of God's provision with the reality of our lives. This was it, right? As they all approached this moment, in the minds of all of those pilgrims were the promises of God to come back for them, God's promise to, uh, uh, to, to rescue, to save, not to leave them as orphans, but to come and make all things right, to provide water for them in the great wilderness of life. And, and then in the climactic moment, the chief priest would, would step up to the altar to the two silver funnels that were there for the daily drink offerings. That's where they'd pour the liquid and the liquid kind of run down this thing. You could hear it. It was a big metal thing. And they would squirt into the altar and psh, get burned up. He would go to one of those daily drink offering funnels with this big pitcher of water. And, and in that moment, up till then, the, the crowd had been singing, Hosanna! Hosanna, God save us. Hosanna in the highest, waving their lulav. But when the, the priest stepped up those stairs and stood next to that thing and he brought the pitcher up, dead silence. Thousands of people completely focused on this moment. You can almost feel them. They're kind of like... And the priest would pour the water into one of those funnels And again, if you were close enough, you could hear it, the water running down. Kind of like when we do baptism, right? Water cleanses and purifies. Water sustains. And it was a holy moment. Everyone focused entirely on this symbolic act that said, God is going to provide. God is going to provide. And it was in that silent, focused moment that a strong, loud voice rang out over the Temple Mount. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. You feel it, right? It was the perfect moment to make the greatest claim. The perfect moment. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them I mean, you get how mind-blowing this is for all of the people gathered there. So many different angles. Like, wait, what just happened? He's supposed to be quiet. All the social norms just got blown up. And wait, what did he say? I think he said if, if we want living water, we could go to him. And what does that even mean? And what's this bit about the living waters flowing from within us? Huh? I mean, in saying this, Jesus was saying in the clearest terms possible that he is the fulfillment of the promises of Scripture remembered in the water ceremony that was happening right in front of them in that very moment. 
He's saying that the new thing God promised to do in Isaiah has begun in him. He's saying that the day promised by God through Zechariah has arrived and that living water will flow from him out into the world in all directions and that flow of living water will not end in the lifetime of this world. All right, we're, we're right back to the same place we found ourselves in the last few stories that we've preached in this series. Uh, the stories of Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus and the healing of the invalid at the pool. I mean, every time, in some way or another, Jesus makes it very clear that he is God in the flesh standing right in front of them. It's the greatest claim ever made. And his communication has not been subtle or subdued so that we might miss it in some way. It's all been like this Festival of Tabernacles thing. Like, boom, in your face, I'm the one. Nobody could miss it in, in that cultural context. Come to me and drink, he said. He's claiming to be the one who can provide God's living water to us. Bring a reconciled relationship with God. Then he said this, whoever believes in me as scripture has said. Wait a second, did this guy just say that the scripture talks about him? Yeah, that's, that's what just happened. He's claiming to be the one to whom the entire Old Testament was pointing. So every story is a sign, right? A sign pointing us to Jesus. Every story is shared that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. John is on point with regard to his purpose. Right, the claims of Jesus are the greatest claims ever made. And, and they don't just demand from us a response. They actually cause a response in the sense that it's impossible not to respond. I mean, C.S. Lewis really did nail it. Jesus' claims about himself were so clear that he is one of three things, necessarily. Can't be anything else. Lord, meaning he was telling the truth about himself and was God. Liar, he was lying about himself and was not God. Or lunatic, meaning he believed he was telling the truth about himself. He really thought he was God, but was deluded and was not God. I, I fully believe if we're intellectually honest in approaching the claims of Jesus, we're left with just these three possibilities. There are no other options. And, and of course, we're here as a church because we believe that option one is the deal, right? Jesus is Lord, that he is who he claimed to be. Now, for some reason, us Westerners tend to make faith in Jesus complicated and easy when in fact it is simple and hard. This is not complex. Right, in his commentary on John's gospel, Frederick Bruner highlights the simplicity of following Jesus. And he highlights three things. I'd like to unpack them for you. The simplest condition, the simplest invitation, and the simplest act. The simplest condition. Remember what Jesus said. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, the rivers, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Later, we learned that what he was referring to there was the fact that when someone places their trust in Christ, God gives them the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who is God, lives within us after that. And in that sense, the Holy Spirit living within us 
will cause these living waters of God to flow even from within us because of the Spirit's presence within us. His promise of the Holy Spirit, of, of salvation in the name of Jesus, comes with the simplest condition. You remember what a conditional statement is, right? If this, then that. Whatever follows the if is the condition. Here's what Jesus said. If anyone is thirsty, not if anyone is pure or qualified, right? Not if anyone has it all together or is good enough. Not if you've cleaned yourself up enough before you come. Not if you've studied theology or suddenly become very religious. According to Jesus, all one need be is needy. That's the only condition. Are you thirsty? Do you have need? Then you are fully qualified to come to Jesus because that is the only condition he set for us. It's the simplest condition. Just raising your hand and saying, yeah, I need that. And the simplest condition is followed by the simplest invitation. Come to me and drink. I mean, this is the one and only to-do that Jesus gives us. We don't have to tick all the boxes off some huge religious checklist. We don't have to dress ourselves up or pretend like we're anything other than the thoroughly broken people we are. Jesus asks us, invites us, no matter where we are right now, no matter where we've been, no matter our level, our internal level of shame or guilt or, or whatever, no matter where we are right now, he asks us to do one thing. Come and drink. Come and drink. Jesus didn't invite people to church. He invited people to himself. Come to me and drink. And if, if you're less familiar with the Bible, this also is everywhere in the New Testament. Look, look at some of the things Jesus said in Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Right? The, the, the image for today is, are you thirsty? Come to me and drink, and I'll satisfy. Imagery here, are, are you restless? Are you tired? Jesus gives rest. In Mark, the very simple invitation, come, follow me. In John chapter six, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And one of the last verses in the entire Bible toward the end of Revelation, the spirit and the bride say come. The Holy Spirit, that is, and the bride of Christ, which is the church. That's what we understand from scripture. So the Holy Spirit and the church say come. And let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty, there's the condition again, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Now you see, that invitation modifies it a bit. It's just not if you're thirsty, but it's if you, if you wish, right? If you're willing. The invitation is simple. Look to Jesus, turn to Jesus, go to Jesus. And we accept that simplest of invitations by taking the simplest of actions. Here's what he said next. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said. Now that means not just believing things about Jesus 
in our heads. This means um, trusting Jesus with our life. The kind of faith to which Jesus invites us is, is not just believing that he is trustworthy, but actually trusting him. And there's a big difference between that. And if if this gets repetitive for some of you, forgive me. I repeat it because it was such an important thing for me to understand when I was coming to Christ because I really didn't get it. I I totally remember uh, college friends coming to me and saying, John, you you need to give your heart to Jesus. What does that even mean? Does anybody, have we thought of, like, and I've done this before, right? You, you need to become a Christian. I, okay, what are you talking about? I don't really understand. When, when Christians use this language, we are, uh, in my estimation, using unhelpful language to try to get to a very specific thing. And the very specific thing is a transfer of trust, thus my stool, right? So, Say that that stool represents all that Jesus did on the cross for you and me and, and the whole world. His, his life, his death, his resurrection, all that God has done for us in the person of Christ. And, and if, if, again, if you're less familiar with the Bible, there's a lot more there. But he came to die in our place that we might be forgiven and freed and come back into a relationship with God. Now, I can believe all that stuff in my head all day long, but I am not yet sitting on that stool. I can believe all day long that that stool would hold me if I chose to sit upon it. That's not the kind of faith the Bible is talking about. I mean, when Jesus says, come to me and drink, uh, or in other places where he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest, all these invitations are an invitation to trust a person, to trust him. And this is the best I've got. If you can describe it in a different way, if you've experienced this, please help me with other ways to explain this. But internally, we are able to kind of understand the claims of Jesus and get this. And the shift goes, comes not when we, in our minds, believe new stuff about Jesus, but the shift comes when we actually do that. Right? And put the whole weight of our life and our trust in a person, in a person. Not organized religion, not really any organized church, right? We bear witness to the person and what he did. But our trust is in a person. So I invite you to that. If you have never done that, there, there's no like magic prayer or something that makes that happen. But the way you start getting at that is you start praying and you say, God, I want to place my trust in you. I believe that you did for me all the things you said you did in Jesus. And I want to kind of set down the toolbox I've been carrying around with me trying to fix my own life. And I simply want to trust in you. That's, that's the thing. Simplest condition the simplest invitation and the simplest act. Following Jesus is simple. And it is hard. It's not like you do this once and hey, hey, good, I'm done. I got my ticket to heaven. We're then invited into a whole new life 
of active following. And we've got to kind of do this trust thing a little bit every day. Again, not to make sure we're right with God because we know that we are when we've done that once, but just to keep following, right? To, to stay on the path. And one more very important thing to note is that the Bible never uses qualifiers to describe faith. What I mean by that is the scripture never throws an adjective or an adverb in front of what faith looks like or or trust. It's not that our trust has to be authentic or complete or, you know, that we need to be utterly trusting or something like that. This is really, really important because when we do that, we make faith out to be a work that we accomplish. Again, Frederick Bruner in his commentary articulated this very well. Let me just read his words. We should never turn the free gift of salvation into the rewarded work of the consecrated Christian by adding adjectives or adverbs to trusting, like totally, utterly, or completely. When we do add such words, we turn trust into an inner work, turn the gift into a trophy, and thus ruin the gospel. Faith is not something we manufacture. Faith is this. Just resting our whole selves in who Jesus is and what it is that he has done for us. Jesus invites us to trust him, not just to believe that he is trustworthy. It's his invitation to you, not mine. And in this dry and weary land where life can seem like a desert, Jesus is the only one who satisfies, really. The only one who can provide for us that which we really need. So, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Father, as we have gathered today and are here together before you, I pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us. And if any of us gathered here or watching this now or later have not tasted, experienced what it means to simply release uh, full trust for our lives to you, I pray that you'd help us with that. God, where there are barriers uh, preventing us from doing that for an initial kind of time, taking that first step of faith. I I pray that you you would help, that you would illumine our minds and hearts and that you would help us see what's holding us back while simultaneously helping us hear again your invitation to come with the understanding that all we need to be is needy. God, thank you that you are that kind of God. Thank you that you have proven you're that kind of God by coming in person that Christmas long ago and by dying and, and being raised again to life. God, it's 
sometimes too much to get our minds around, yet we trust. Thank you, Father. Pour out your spirit on us and help us move forward with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.